through 2 Corinthians. Now, last week we uh, did the first uh, 14 verses there, and we did a little bit of an introduction. And it's been a while since we've gone through uh, an epistle here, so we're kind of doing it a little bit differently. The way I'm kind of doing this is we're getting the general overall theme, but at the same time we're kind of hitting some of these points as we go through it of the main points is what we do. Now, you got to remember 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians was obviously written as a response to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was written because the church at Corinth, and we talked about this last week, the church at Corinth was one of the most immoral, debased places in the world at that time. And the church at Corinth had a lot of problems and issues that were going on, so 1 Corinthians was written to correct those issues. Well, what happened was the church at Corinth, they got their feet stepped on a little bit. And so they were hurt by what Paul said. And so Paul wrote 2 Corinthians as a way to kind of respond to those issues, kind of a letter to say, hey, let's, let's work at this. But we said the key theme is actually found in chapter 7, and I'm not going to make you turn there. He goes, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Paul says, the reason I'm writing 2 Corinthians is to let you know, hey, I love you, I still love you, but you were wrong. And I had to have those issues corrected. So we get into that a little bit more here now and as we continue in the book. So with that being said, let's look what happens here in verse 15. It says, And in this confidence I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit, to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you, and to be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me, by Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. Now, a real quick point about this, what basically Paul is saying is, hey, when I, when I came to you, when I ministered to you, it's not something I did at a drop of a hat. This is prayed over, sought the Lord over. Okay, that's a good point. But this is something I see that we as Christians run into a lot, is this idea of seeking the Lord. Look at verse 17. When I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? Boy, that verse convicted me. Do you realize how many times in life we make big choices based on the flesh? Based on our wisdom, our intellect? Well, this looks good. I've shared this with you before. I've seen people move, people change jobs, uh, people change ministries, people break up, whatever relationship, fill in the blank, all based on the flesh. Well, that looks better, so therefore I'm going to go to it. Well, that sounds better, therefore I'm going to go to it. And so what happens is the thing I always like to say is, well, have you sought the Lord over this? Well, why wouldn't God lead me to that? It's better. Because sometimes the world dangles a carrot in front of us. It's not necessarily better. Wisdom is stepping back and separating yourself from the situation and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? And you guys all know the passage. I'm just going to read it to you real quick. It's out of James 4. James 4, verse 13 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. God says, check with me first. Just check with me before you make these big life decisions. Look once again at verse 17. Do you plan things lightly? Do you plan things according to the flesh? According to what you want and what your wisdom is? If you do, God is telling you, check with me. 
Now be careful about this. This is one of those verses that you can take to an extreme. When I got ready for church day, I did not pray over what socks I should wear. You know, To be quite honest, when I get home, I'm not going to pray about what to eat for supper. I'll thank the Lord for my supper. But there's also then the extreme of, I know what I'm doing and I can do everything on my own. One of the most dangerous places you can be is to think that you know what's best for your life. The longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize i got to pray about stuff. Lord, what do you think? And it used to bother me because people would come up to me and expect an answer right away. Now, what do you think about this? Well, the problem is you've been thinking about it for weeks, maybe months. Maybe you've been praying about it, so the answer is very clear to you. I've heard it for all of 30 seconds. And I always used to feel like I had to give an answer. Now it's kind of like, you know, let me think about that for a little bit. Let me pray about it. Because James 4 tells me, I'm a vapor. Vapors don't have much intelligence. Vapors just kind of float around. And so what Paul is saying is here is don't do these things lightly. Don't plan according to the flesh. Let it be a yes or a no and keep it at that. And I love the yes-no thing. This is an ongoing theme at the Bible, but I run into this a lot in the church where, where Christians either don't know about this verse or let it go. Do you realize what God has said continually throughout the Bible? He says it in Matthew 5. He says it in James 5. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, what does that mean? That means that when someone comes up to you, and you don't have to tell them, I swear to you, I'm telling the truth. Well, why do you have to swear to me you're telling the truth? Because that makes me assume that there's a lot of times you're not telling the truth. So this instance, you're really promising me you're telling me the truth. See, the point is, as Christians, if we're truthful, honest people, when I say yes, you can trust that. If I say no, you can trust that. And that's what Paul's saying here in verses 17 and 18. He goes, I don't have to promise this, swear to that, or whatever. I mean, how many times do you hear it, and it always makes me cringe. I swear to God it's true. I swear in the Bible. I've actually had somebody tell me one time, because you've got a Bible, I'll put my hand on it right now and promise. So I think you don't have to do that. Actually, one of my favorite stories, this is an honest-to-goodness true story. Uh, I had some friends in high school, and one of them got saved. And so this was a classic high school conversation, and somebody wanted them to promise, not promise. They couldn't find a Bible, so my friend that was saved and born again, he just quoted scriptures, and they put their hand on them. And the guy swore to tell the truth as the guy was quoting scripture there. Um, it's kind of funny there. But anyway, point, though, is as Christians, we're supposed to be just yes, yes, no, no, what you see there in verses 17 and 18. And point is, your word is important. Now, we've lost this in the body of Christ. We've lost this idea of truth. Everything we say has a little bit of deceit. Everything we say has a little bit of maybe white lie, and we don't think it's a big deal. A half-truth. As the saying goes, a half-truth is also half a lie. Paul says, I said I'm coming. I've said I'm doing it. My yes is yes. My no is no. Don't you know somebody that you just can't trust? They'll say yes, but you know you can't trust it. They'll say no, and you know you can't trust it. Paul says, I'm not that type of person. He goes, I prayed about coming to you. I didn't do it lightly. I didn't plan to the flesh. I said, this is what I'm going to do, and that's what I did. Paul meant what he said and said what he meant. Let's move on here now. I like this verse 20. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now you look at that, and that doesn't mean that all the promises of God are yes, like whatever you want God gives you. It's saying whatever God has promised you is going to happen. Now stop and think about that for a second. God's promises are going to happen. Now I started writing down the promises of God. And the truth of the matter is you can go to any Christian bookstore and find promises of God, and there are hundreds and hundreds of verses. So for me, I just wrote down four promises of God that impact me. First one, and you may, have, you may think of this one, Romans 8, 28. And all think God works for the good. God works for the good of those that are called according to his purposes. That's a promise. Do you realize that? If, I, if I'm walking 
in the Lord, and something happens to me, God says, James, I'm going to use that for good. That's a promise. Next one I thought of was Hebrews 13.5. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a promise. So therefore, when I'm feeling dark and empty in life, God says, I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. Next one, Isaiah 55.11. God's word doesn't return void. When I'm doing counseling or if I'm teaching, as long as I present God's word, God says, I promise I'm going to use that. Last one, Proverbs 22.6. I got little kids at home. Train up a child in the way they will go. When they will old, they will not depart from it. That's a promise. Now for you, there may be different verses that hit you when it comes to the promise verses. But here's the truth of the matter. Those are promises. So hence, verse 20, all the promises of God in Him are yes. So therefore, don't doubt what God has promised. Why is it in the middle of darkness we start doubting? Lord, you promise that all things work together for the good. Yeah, there's no good in this. Lord, you promise you will never leave me nor forsake me. I feel pretty left out right now. Lord, you promise that your word does not return void. I've shared scripture with them. I've prayed for them. I've given them verses. I don't see any fruit coming. God says, wait a second. Do you really believe, verse 20, that all the promises of God are yes? Do you believe that to the point of where you can place your faith and trust in that? So much so, I was thinking of Hebrews and Hebrews 11, when Abraham went to offer up Isaac. Do you remember what Hebrews 11 tells us about that? Abraham said, hey, even if God is, if Isaac is dead, he still believed the promise enough that God would just raise him from the dead right then. Now, isn't that amazing? Think about that. Go back in time there to Genesis. Here's Abraham that has his promised child, Isaac. He's told by the Lord to go sacrifice your son. So he goes and he takes care of it. And, and most commentators believe Isaac at this time was probably a man in his mid, mid-20s, maybe even close to 30. You know, and Abraham at this time had to have been what? What, about 120? So Isaac being bound? No, Isaac willfully allowed this. But here's Abraham, knife in the air, getting ready to come down on Isaac. And this was his promised son. Abraham basically said, we find out in Hebrews 11, saying, hey, even if he would have died, God would have raised him from the dead. Boy, that's a faith. Have you ever seen that person in the middle of the storm that says, hey, I don't know what's happening, I don't know what's going to happen, but I still trust God. Paul and Silas, chained up, excuse me, chained up in prison, what were they doing? Singing hymns. They trusted. They trusted the promises of God. Now, how could Paul have that promise? Because God told Paul what? You get to go to Rome. Well, he hadn't been to Rome yet. He trusted the promise. And so therefore, whatever God promised you in verse 20, it's a yes. It's going to happen. What a beautiful picture of faithfulness. And Paul says, it's yes. We can trust this. question comes up of, do we believe it? You have to accept or reject that. Anybody have any quick questions, comments on those first two points there before I move on to the rest of this? Now, the rest of this goes pretty quick. I want you to just look at some key words here. Start in verse 21. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us as God who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Moreover, I call God as a witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. But I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then he is, then excuse me, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? I want you to look at some words here. Now, your translations are going to have a little bit different words, especially if you have NIV or New Living, etc. But look at these words here in verse 21. First one, God establishes us, then he anoints us, and after that, he seals us. I like those words. 
He establishes you. He sets you, the Bible says. He fixes you. When you are established in Christ, you are not moved. Why is it as Christians, and we talked about this Sunday, we are set on the foundation of Christ, but yet when the storms of life hit us, we get knocked off the foundation. God says, no, you are established in Christ. If you are established in Christ, you are set, you are fixed, you're not moved. And if you're established in Christ, even one step better than this, look at this in verse 21, you're anointed. Wow. Anointed literally means the Holy Spirit there is upon you. That's part of the blessing of having being established in Christ is the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And if the Holy Spirit lives inside you, you look at verse 22, you're now sealed. Depending on your translation. One translation calls it a seal of ownership. Another one says identified. You are sealed. Basically, bad analogy, you got your dog tags around your neck that says this is who you are. God says you're mine. And how do I know I'm his? Because I'm established in Christ, verse 21. I'm anointed in God, verse 21. And I'm sealed with the Spirit in verse 22. People all the time are looking for some of those verses that spell out the Trinity. Is that not the Trinity in verses 21 and 22? Christ, God, and the Spirit, they all have a role. And you see this beautiful picture here of what it means to be a Christian. And when you are established in Christ... According to 2 Thessalonians 2, being established in Christ gives you comfort. When you're established in Christ, according to 1 Thessalonians 3, that gives you encouragement. So if you're facing a difficult time, as long as you're established in Christ, you have comfort and you have encouragement. And you're anointed with the Spirit, and you're also sealed in the Spirit, verse 22. How can you go wrong with that? See, those are those little blessings that you see as you go through this. Is wow, Lord, I'm set on the foundation of Christ. I'm anointed by God. I have the Spirit sealed in me. I'm comforted. I'm encouraged. That's what I need to hear tonight, Lord. And what a blessing that is. I also like verse 24 a lot. Not that we have dominion over your faith. Wow. Haven't you ever seen Christians try to take ownership of people, ministries? It's the Lord's. That's the one thing I learned very early out here is I don't want my fingerprints on anything out here because it's God's. There has to be a freedom to trust that the Lord brings people, moves people like puzzle pieces around. And you don't know how long you're going to have them in a season of life, but just enjoy it while it's here. And also, it's not mine. It's, it's not my church. It's not my people. And I feel a spiritual burden and responsibility for people. And I, and I will use that spiritual burden to say, hey, you're part of the flock. And as part of the flock, I'm the pastor. I care. But to say that they're mine, Paul says, no, I don't have dominion over you, he says. Yeah, I'm the apostle, Paul. Yeah, I'm writing epistles. Yeah, I'm writing the Bible as I speak. Paul may not have known it at the time. But the point is, he comes out and says, I can't claim you, dominion over you. But look at that verse 24. You're my fellow workers for joy. That's God's plan, is this idea of joy and unity, working together. That's what he wanted there. Look at verse 3. And I wrote this very thing to you, thus when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in all you that my joy is the joy of you all. Do you not get that? Why is that as a body of Christ we lose this? You know, once again, why do we do prayer requests on Wednesday nights? Because when someone's hurting, we want to hurt with them. When someone's excited, we want to be excited with them. That's the purpose of the body of Christ. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. Paul says in verse 3, What do I get out of making you sorrowful? Why would I purposely want to hurt you? Because if I hurt you, that takes my joy away from me. That's a marriage verse. 
I see a lot of time in marriages where this idea of, you know what, you hurt me, so I want to hurt you back. And so now you feel bad, which makes me feel better. No, you're one flesh. When you attack your spouse, you're really attacking yourself. What joy do you get out of seeing a loved one be sorrowful? There's no joy in making someone sorrowful. I call verse 2, that sorrowful verse, I call it tear down Christianity. I've run into some people where they're only happy if they're tearing everybody down. They're just constantly picking out the flaws and faults in everybody and pointing out sin and, and tearing down. And if you go to them and try to tell them about grace and love, I usually hear something back, well, I just want to speak the truth. Well, the truth is also love. Ephesians 4.15 says, speak the truth in love. So you can have truth. Truth is great, but if you don't have love, what's the point? But I've also seen the other side. I just love them so much. I don't want to tell them they're doing something wrong because I just love them. No, you've got to find that balance of truth and love. Paul loved the church at Corinth enough to speak honest to goodness truth to them. There's a balance that has to come there. Right, we're not here to tear people down, but we're here to also speak the truth. And why did he have to speak the truth to them? Because of what was going on. In verses 4 and 5, he talks about how anguished and, and how sad he was about that. And why? Because there was sin going on at the church in Corinth. And so therefore, he told him, you need to take care of the sin. Look at verse 6. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Paul's saying, okay, now listen, you did what I asked you in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a pretty straightforward book. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if you have somebody in the body that says they're a Christian and not acting like a Christian, Paul says sometimes you've got to say, hey, get out. You're not only hurting the body, you're hurting our witness, you're hurting everybody. Paul says, okay, now in 2 Corinthians, you did that, verse 6, good. But now, verse 7 and 8, there's also this concept of grace, of go back, reaffirm your love to him. Now, why? Because this obviously this man, according to verse 7, was repentant. Now, if he's not repentant, you don't say, hey, come back, we're sorry. This man obviously was repentant, he wanted things to change, and therefore, since he wanted things to change, Paul says, now you go back. This is where we fail a lot as Christians. We are known more for what we stand against than what we stand for. God described himself as a God of love. First John. God said, they will know you're my disciples by your what? Love. But yet, if you go to the unsaved world, what do they know that Christians stand for? Well, we're against this, and we're against that, and we don't like this. All that is truth. But this idea of love has now gone out the window. Paul says, don't forget, verses 7 and 8, love. Love. He goes, don't forget that. Verse 10, now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, we are not ignorant of his devices. That's the last point I want to spend on here, and I just want to spend a couple seconds on it. This idea of being ignorant of the devices of Satan. That word is better translated schemes, because that's what the enemy does. He schemes. You remember when Christ was uh, in the wilderness, and uh, the enemy came and tempted him. The Bible says that Satan left and looked for what? A more opportune time. The enemy is always looking for ways to bring us down and pull us down. And it's kind of interesting when you look at his names, what they mean. And here's just a couple things I'm going to throw at you real quick. Name Lucifer means light bearer. Well, isn't that an oxymoron there? Satan means adversary and devil means slander. 
Those are the different terms they have for Satan. A little bit of background on Satan, for some of you may know this. He was created as a cherub. He actually was established to serve God in the heavenly role. That was his initial thing. He fell because of pride. The Bible now refers to him as the God of this age, the ruler of this world. And according to John 10.10, his mission statement is to steal, kill, and destroy. And according to Revelation 12.10, he likes to accuse the brethren. We get a picture of this in the beginning of the book of Job. Satan is called before God there in heaven. And what does Satan do? He picks on Job. So you don't even know what Satan's doing on a regular basis, trying to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's trying to attack us. Now, the things about Satan here, real quick, you've got to remember, just some quick points. His power is limited. He's not omnipotent like God. His location is limited. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. And his knowledge is limited. He's not omniscient. Sometimes we put Satan almost up there as one step below the Trinity. Satan is a created being that has limited power, limited location, and limited knowledge. You've got to remember that. Now, the problem with Satan is there's two extremes. There's the one extreme of I don't want to talk about him. It makes me nervous. Let's just not talk about him. No, we just read there. Let's not be ignorant of his devices. And then there's the other extreme where people are blaming Satan for absolutely everything. Tire blew out today. Satan. No, I don't know. Maybe a nail in your garage. I don't know. So there's these extremes that happen there that you have to find the balance of what's going on there. How does Satan work? Well, Satan likes to do three things. He likes to twist, he likes to lie, and he likes to deceive. Twist, we know that from Genesis chapter 3. What did he do when talking to Eve? He twisted God's word. Did you not realize? This is why Paul wrote, do not be ignorant of his devices. 6,000 years ago, what did Satan do? He twisted words. What does Satan still do now? He twists God's word. Look at any major cult that has a link to Christianity. God's word is just twisted. You all work with somebody that claims to be a Christian that twists God's word. Same thing happened 6,000 years ago. Next thing a Satan does is just lie. According to John 8, 44, he says he's the father of lies. Sometimes he doesn't twist, he just outright lies. There's cults out there that aren't twisting scriptures, they're lying about it. There's no hell. Second chance salvation. Jesus isn't the only way. That's not twisting. That's just outright lying. And lastly, he deceives. Second Corinthians chapter 11 says that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Guys, I've seen a lot of angels of light on TV. I've seen a lot, heard a lot of angels of light on the radio. And it's a masquerading of deception, of twisting and lies. And you sit there and you say, no, that, that's not of the Lord. What do you mean? He's, he's got the Bible right in front of him. He's reading right from God's word. He's... He's twisting. He's lying. Just like Jesus when he was in the wilderness, what did Satan do? Satan quoted about as much scripture as Christ did. He twisted and he lied with it. And Paul says, don't be ignorant of his devices. Now, putting this all to perspective here to finish up, why would Paul throw that verse in there? Because the church at Corinth got twisted. They got twisted in their theology that had to be corrected. They got lied to on Paul's heart and attitude. Paul spends a lot of 2 Corinthians defending himself because the church at Corinth thought, well, this is what Paul's like. And then also the church at Corinth got deceived by false teaching. Paul says, don't be ignorant of these devices. He says, keep it simple. Seek the Lord on his will for your life. First point we said. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Second point that we said. If you're established, anointed, and sealed... You don't have to worry about anything. That's the beauty of it. If you're established, anointed, and sealed in the Lord, in the Spirit, and God's Word, you don't have to worry about it. Don't let Satan get in there and start making you do the mind, mind, mind thing when it comes to ministry. It's not yours. It's the Lord. Speak the truth in love. 
When you have all those things together, you can see how the enemy would want to get in and destroy. And Paul says, don't be ignorant of it. You know he's going to hit. You know he's going to attack. Stand up and stand strong, he says against him. Does anybody have any final questions, comments here about anything that we went over tonight? All right, let's have a word of prayer and we'll let you guys go. Then, Heavenly Father, thankful for the time to be here tonight. And Lord, I just pray that we would truly have that heart. Lord, help us to have a heart of speaking the truth in love. Help us to have a heart of uh, unity. Help us to have a heart to seek you on what you want for our lives and what you want for us. And Lord, help us to have an understanding there of just like we talked about the enemy. To not be ignorant of his devices, Lord, of how he tries to bring us down. To realize those things and to stand strong in your spirit. Ephesians 6.12, Lord, help us put on the armor of God in all that we say and do in your name. Amen. Two things here.